So we're reading from Nehemiah chapter 1 from verse 1. During the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, The remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly towards you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the and to that of your servants who delight and to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but depression. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, Send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. We find the second reading on page 1119, towards the end of the Bible. 1 John, chapter 1, verses 5. Now this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practising the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say, we don't have any sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The love, sorry, the one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Thank you, Tim. If you just joined us here, we are looking at uh, five Old Testament prayers during the month of January, or literally five Old Testament prayers. So we're more focused on the people who pray, not just what they prayed. Uh, this is our year of prayer church, so our desire is that uh, we would have a deep delight in talking to God, that we love just bringing all our desires, all our requests, all our petitions, all our praises to him. That's my, my prayer for this church, is that we would love to pray. And tonight we're going to meet a, a great man of prayer. His, his name is Nehemiah. So you want to turn back in your Bibles to page 428 to, to Nehemiah. But before we meet him, I want to introduce you to three other great prayer warriors you may have heard of the first two, you won't have heard of the third. The first one is this man here, Robert Murray McShane. You ever heard of him? Great Scottish preacher from about 200 years ago. His most famous quote is this, you wish to humble a man, ask him about his prayer life. A man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. It's a great quote he's saying, you know, who cares what you earn? Who cares where you live? Who cares about your friendship? What really matters, what at the core of your being is your intimacy with God, your, your devotion to God, your prayer life with God. He, he's saying like the prayer is like a, a window into your soul. The way that you pray, how you pray, who you pray to, it really does show who you are as a human being. He, he also said that... Uh, it's great that you want to be used by God. How about you made yourself more usable by allowing God to transform you, to be more humble and more prayerful? It's not about what you do. It's about allowing God to change you and transform you by your prayer life. I'd love to be able to pray like Robert Murray McShane. The next prayer warrior is a man called William Booth. Have you heard of him? He was the founder of the Salvation Army. A true story, there's a, a mission team from the Salvation Army who are seeking to witness and to evangelize and to reach the lost. And they are discouraged. They are disappointed. They feel it's all a waste of time. And they write to William Booth and they say, we're about to give up. What should we do? Four words. Try tears and try prayers. And what he's saying there is like, have you wept for the lost souls? Have you wept over those who do not yet know Christ? Have you prayed for them? Have you got on your knees before God and interceded with God for these lost souls that you're trying to win? Or are you just doing things in your own strength? 
There's a man who believed in the power of prayer. I'd love to meet William Booth. I'd love to meet Robert Moe McShane. You've probably never heard of Sybil Puddock. Anyone heard of her? Of course you haven't. She's never written a book. She's never preached a sermon. When I met her, she was in her 80s. She couldn't walk. She sat in her chair at church, in her wheelchair. She couldn't do anything at church, but she could do one thing. She could pray. And, you know, she, I used to go to her on a Sunday night in Oxford in this church I was at, and I'd go to her, and she said to me, Paul, oh, how was that lecture you were doing on Thursday? I was praying for that. And I knew that she was. Or she said to me, you know, that friend of yours, Roger, who is not yet a Christian, you mentioned him about four months ago. I've been praying for him. And I go, wow, you know, because actually this week, this very week, I had a gospel conversation with him. Or in the days before texts, he used to send me these little letters or these little cards. Or you ever see these prayer cards you buy from Kuron with a verse on? Just inspiring me and encouraging me to pray. And what Sybil did was she showed me and she reminded me that behind every great work of God and behind every great miracle of God, there's often a, a man or a woman on their knees before God praying. And you often don't know who they are or where they are, but God listens to our prayers. Three great people of prayer. And tonight we're going to meet Nehemiah. He's a man of prayer. He is praying to his God because he's in a crisis. We, we, all, we all pray in a crisis, don't we? Even the unbelievers pray in a crisis. Ever heard of Jemima Khan? She was married to Imran Khan. Uh, she was on a flight from London to Nairobi and the plane plummeted thousands of feet in a matter of seconds. She said this, I prayed and I begged and I bartered out loud because everyone else joined in. They were calling on their God, on Allah, on Buddha, on God, whoever he is. I don't know who he is, she said, but I was desperate, so I prayed. That's what everyone does. They pray in a crisis. The difference with Nehemiah and the difference with you and I is that we know who God is and we believe in a God who hears prayers and answers prayers, don't we? So what's the first thing you do in a crisis? You pray. Now, this is a crisis that Nehemiah faces, just so you understand the context of this prayer. The year is about 444 BC. 444 BC. So, God's people have returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. And they've been back for a while, and the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls haven't been rebuilt. And Nehemiah is one of God's people, he's an Israelite. But we're told in verse, verse 1, he's not living in Jerusalem. He's living in this place called Susa. That's in the Middle East. And we're told down in verse 11 that his job was to be the king's cupbearer. He's kind of like what I call doing it tough for the Lord. So he's living in this, this amazing city, living in a palace, working for the king. And his job, get this, his job is to taste the wine every night. To make sure the wine is the finest for the king. And also to make sure the wine's not poisoned. So he's living in this palace wearing the finest clothes, eating the finest food, having a wonderful time. Except the king that he's serving, King Artaxerxes, chapter 2, verse 1, is a pagan. He's not a believer. And to make matters worse, this king has the authority to rebuild the walls. And so when Hanani comes in, verse 2, one of Nehemiah's brothers and the news is not good, 
because the walls have been broken down and God's people are under attack and God's people are exposed. That is the crisis. Nehemiah is working for the king who has the power and the king who has the authority, but he's not a believer. So how is little Nehemiah the believer going to handle this crisis? That's the situation. Now, all the books on Nehemiah, all the podcasts on Nehemiah talk about leadership. Leadership lessons from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the great man of God and the great leader of God. He's only a great leader because he's a great prayer. We learn that lesson. He's only a great leader because he knew how to pray. He was a man of prayer. And that's what made him a great man of God. So before we dive into actual prayer itself, let me just stress a few things. He's an ordinary man. Often when you read the Bible, you think these guys are superheroes. Nehemiah is not a superhero. He's just like you and I. Now, if you're here tonight and you're a great businessman, please don't look to Steve Jobs as being your great example because you're a fill of failure. You can't compete with him. Here tonight is a great musician. Don't look to Mozart or whoever it is, Justin Timberlake or Justin Bieber as your example because you're going to feel a failure. Just look at the person around you. We're all equal when it comes to our prayer lives. That's Nehemiah. He's an ordinary man. A few things to learn. He prayed before he acted. That is so important. Look at verse 4. He hears that God's people are in distress. He hears that God's walls have been broken down. And verse 4, he says, And now when I heard these words, I got into action mode. And I sat down and I planned and I strategized and I decided what the solution was going to be. Is that what he says? Look at verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. And I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. That really struck me this week, though, that when the crisis hits, he doesn't rush into the presence of the earthly king with a solution. When the crisis hits, he runs to the king of kings. He runs to the throne of heaven, and he gets on his knees and he prays. He prayed first, and then he acted. Maybe you should learn that lesson tonight. Less action and more prayer. I remember organizing a, a mission as at university uh, with the Christian Union and we we got this speaker, this overseas speaker and we paid for the flights and we booked the rooms and we, in the days before Facebook, we put the posters up and we'd invited friends, we put our friendships on the line and a week before the mission started, the university authorities said to us, no go, this mission is not going to happen and they tore down the posters and they wrote an article about how the Christian Union was a cult. And I'm on, on this organizing committee. And Paul Dale, with his A type personality, goes, Okay, that's okay. Who are the lawyers here? What's our strategy? What's our plan? Who's the marketing campaigner? We can defeat this. And there's one man on the committee. He'd said very little for about three months before. And he just said in the choir voice, How about we pray? How about we stop and we pray? And I was like, yeah, we will pray, but we've got, we've got action. We've got, we've got a week to go. Come on, action. 
And we stopped, and we prayed, and we kept on praying, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And then God answered our prayers, and the mission did go ahead. But the way that God changed the authorities' minds was totally different to what my human plan of action would be. And I learned my lesson, pray first, and then act. Pray first, and then act in that order. My wife constantly reminds me of that. I come home and I say, oh, I'm so stressed about this and this and this. And when it comes to church, I should we do this or should we do this? Or I don't want to preach about this. And she says, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed about it? And it's kind of like a dagger. Oh, yeah, silly me again. Less action, more prayer. So he prayed, then he acted. He prayed out of his emotions. See that again, verse 4? When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. His prayers accompanied by tears and mourning and fasting. Just like Job wept before the Lord and Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Nehemiah is so deeply concerned for God's people that he weeps for them. Let me be really clear here. He is not weeping over walls. He is not crying because the walls have broken down. He's, he's crying, he is weeping because of the hearts and the souls of God's people. He feels their pain. He hears their distress. You know, when the news comes to him in Susa about God's people over here in Jerusalem, he doesn't think, oh, oh, that's a bit sad. Oh, oh my, my, it must be really tough for those Christians over there. And he doesn't think, oh, I'm over here and they're over there. I can't do that. It. But when he hears about God's people hundreds of miles away, his heart is distressed. He feels their pain. He heals their hurts. So I want to ask you, is that how you react when you hear about the plight of God's people? You know, when, when we get a report on Voice of the Martyrs, and we hear about the, the Christians in Vietnam that we support here at Church by the Bridges, and those women whose husbands are in prison for their faith, do you sit there and go, oh, it must be tough for them? Or does your heart ache for them? Do you feel their pain and their misery? Because if you did, perhaps you might actually pray for them more intensely. You know, when you hear the, the news reports of ISIS and the, the Christians who are being beheaded by ISIS, do you just sit there and go, oh, that's terrible? Or, or, or is there something that you're, you're, you're crushed to your very core that you weep about that? Because if we did, we might actually pray for them, not just tick off a point on our prayer list. Well, let's be it close to home. When someone at Church Bible Bridge at 7pm tells you about their cancer diagnosis or their depression or their unemployment or their hurts or their pains, do you just say, oh, I'm sorry? Or does something happen within you that you actually feel their pain and feel their distress that causes you to drive onto your knees and actually pray for them? He prays because he feels their pain. And then he prayed with fasting. Verse 4, I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the Lord. And as soon as you see that word fasting, you kind of freak out, don't you? Because most evangelicals don't know what to do with fasting. It's sort of too bizarre, or it's misunderstood, or it's a bit scary. Why? Why is it so misunderstood? It's really simple, isn't it? You just... 
Is just voluntarily abstaining for food for a short period of time to help you focus on God. What's scary about that? It is bizarre, you know, when you turn to Matthew's Gospel and Jesus is talking about prayer and fasting. Jesus says, when you pray, assuming that you do pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. And he turns to fasting and says, when you fast, assuming that you do fast, not if you fast, but when you fast, make sure that you fast not to be seen by people. The assumption is that if you're a man or woman here and you know God and you love God and you believe that God is powerful, there'll be times in your Christian life where you want to have specific prayer times with God where fasting is very, very helpful. You don't have to tell it when you're doing it. Just do it privately. Listen to what John Calvin said. Yes, John Calvin on fasting. Whenever men are to pray to God concerning any great matter, it would be expedient to appoint fasting along with prayer because fasting sharpens the edge of your intercessions. That dedication, that devotion, that single-mindedness that helps you pray to God by voluntarily abstaining from food or voluntarily abstaining from Facebook or from television, whatever it is, but give up something to help you to focus on God. So he prayed before he acted, he prayed through emotions, he prayed with fasting, he prayed constantly with different types of prayers. You see, verses 5 to 11 of Nehemiah chapter 1, I think is kind of like his, his quiet time prayer, that, that deliberate, detailed, structured, theological prayer time with God. I think you're supposed to imagine Nehemiah sitting at his prayer desk and he's thinking and he's pondering and he's carefully crafting each sentence of his prayer because this is important, this is his time with God. I don't imagine as he prays verses 5 to 11 that Nehemiah is multitasking, do you? I don't imagine he's sitting there with Facebook open and his iPhone on and a book on the go and he's just dipping in and out with God. He's just so focused, single-minded on who God is and what God can do for him. Because he's in a relationship with God. You ever been in those conversations with, with, with people and they're, they're multitasking as, as they talk to you? Checking their phone, flicking through Facebook as they're supposed to be in a conversation with you or looking over your shoulder or going through their to-do list. What does that communicate to you? It communicates that you, know, that they, that you haven't got their attention. And there's times with God, you know, where God just wants your attention. He wants you to be so devoted to him that you just want to spend time with him. But what struck me as well is that it's not the only prayer that Nehemiah prayed. Come down to chapter 2, verse 4. So Nehemiah has prayed this amazing prayer that we'll look at in a minute. And he's prayed, give your servants success today, verse 11. And then a few months later, verse 4 happens, and the king asked me, what's your request? And Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Let's think about 2 verse 4. The king says, what's your request? Nehemiah prayed. Now do you think when the king said, what's your request? Nehemiah said, hang on a minute, I need to go to my study, sit down at my prayer desk, and have my half hour quiet time and pray to God, and I'll come, and I'll come back to you, I'll get back to you. I imagine when the king said, what's your request? Nehemiah went, 
Please, Lord, help me. Give me wisdom. My request is this. You ever done that? That quick arrow prayer to God? See, the quick arrow prayer shows that you are totally dependent on God in every situation, in every moment, and there are times in your daily walk that you just need to cry out to God and pray. And I hope as a Christian man, you do both. You've got your prolonged quiet time prayer and your, your quick arrow prayers, because we need both, don't we? Now think about any human relationship. The people that you are closest to, you don't rely on your two-hour diarised communication slot to do all your communication, do you? You have the odd text and the odd phone call and the quick ten-second chat. That's the way a relationship works. Same with God. Yes, we need these deep, quiet times, these disciplined, devoted times with God, and we need the quick arrow prayers. And I think for many of us, we might be good at the quiet time prayers, but it's almost like once you've had your quiet time, now you can get on with the day without God. And the constant time, I'm just quick prayer to God in every situation. So he prayed, and then he waited. You see, the request of chapter 1, verse 11, give your servant success today, is answered in chapter 2, verse 4, when the king says, okay, off you go, go and rebuild the walls. But what you might not have picked up was that the today of chapter 11 wasn't answered that day, or the next day, or the next week, or even the next month. It was four, years late, four months later. So between praying the prayer and God's answering the prayer was four months. And Nehemiah waited, seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's guidance, seeking confirmation, and trusting God's timing. You've got to learn to that in your prayer life, you know, that your prayers are not answered in your times, they're answered in God's times. Now, I wasn't going to say any of that tonight. I wanted to focus on what Nehemiah prayed, but I do think sort of how he prayed is important. He prayed first, he acted later. He prayed constantly with different prayers. He prayed through his emotions. He, he waited for God to answer prayer, and he prayed with fasting. That might help for us to pray. But what did he pray? I want to give you an acronym tonight. You've heard of these acronyms. You know, ACTS stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. You might use that one. You might use STOP, which is sorry, thank you, others, please. But I want to suggest a new acronym. It's the acronym PRAY. And P stands for PRAYS. As you sit down with God and you want to spend time with God, please, please, please start with adoration and praise and awe as who God is. See, when Nehemiah prayed, chapter 1, verse 5, he didn't start with his cries for help. He didn't start for his shopping list. He didn't present his plans to God to a rubber stamp. He starts with God, who God is, what God has done, what God is like. And he starts with that not to butter God up, they tell God how wonderful he is so then he's going to give you what you want. He starts with how, how amazing God is because he just loves God. Chapter 1, verse 5, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the, the great and awe-inspiring God who, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandment. Let your eyes be open, your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer. He's saying, wow, God, I just love you and I adore you and I worship you. 
He starts with calling God the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God. He, he's saying, God, you are majestic, you are mighty, you are powerful, you are glorious, you are holy, you are other. How great thou art, God. And yet, yet Nehemiah is about to attempt great things for God, but he only does that because his God is a great God. It's almost like you've got that chorus in the back of his mind there. Our God is an awesome God who reigns in heaven above. Our God sits on his throne and he is glorious and he's mighty and he's powerful. And when you start by focusing on the bigness and the mightiness of God, it reminds you, it reminds you to keep on praying because of how glorious he is. He has the power and the authority to answer your prayers. And then he moves on to the relational side, the covenant God, verse 5. He keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him. The word for Yahweh in chapter 1, verse 5, is the word Lord, L-O-R-D. The God who said, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. So he comes before this God who says, God, you love me. You keep your promises, God. You're a good God. You're a faithful God. You're not distant God. You know me. You cherish me. One of the joys of watching our, our boys grow up is something happens around this sort of the eight to ten month mark. So for the first sort of six to eight months, you just plonk a baby down, they just sit there, they don't move. And from time to time, you as a dad go back to the baby and you look at them, yeah, they're okay, and you will keep on doing your business and go back to them, yeah, they're okay. And then suddenly they start to move or start to crawl. And an unusual thing happens that this baby decides to crawl to you as their dad. Sometimes you'd be lying in bed and this sort of one-year-old would sort of crawl up and sort of pull himself up and just look at you and stare at you. As though, like, I want to be near you, I want to be with you. It's kind of bizarre. And I just wonder whether we relearn that in our prayer life. Rather than just expecting God to gaze on us and look on at us, to know that we, like a toddler, can just go to him and gaze on him. And just spend time looking at his majesty and his glory and his beauty and his love and saying, wow, God, I love you for who you are. And maybe your prayer life is a bit lacking because you've stopped praising God for who he is. I'd love to be known as a verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11, man. The servant who delights to revere God's name. To start with praise, which in the R stands for. Praise God and then repent. As soon as Nehemiah recognizes how great God is, he says, well, that's not me. God, you're great, but I'm not. God, you're awesome, but I'm not. God, you're reliable, you're trustworthy, you're consistent, you're good, you're loving, but I'm not God. See, if you just go to God with your shopping list, you won't recognize your need for forgiveness. Against the backdrop of God's character, all his guilt, all his sin is exposed. And so he prays in verse 6, I confess the sins that we have committed against you, God. Both I and my father's house have sinned. He includes himself. We have sinned. No excuses. No provocation. He just says, we have sinned. And he links sin in verse 7 to acting corruptly towards his God and not keeping God's command. He's saying, God, this is your word, this is your character, and we haven't done it, we haven't kept it. We have sinned. 
And again, it struck me this week that there's a, there's a corporate nature to confession and there's a corporate nature to repentance. We have sinned. Do you ever think about that when we say the confession together? It's not I, it's we. Because my sin impacts you and your sin impacts me. We're family, aren't we? So when one of us sins, we all feel it. It was President Lincoln in the US in 1863 who set aside a day of national prayer. He said this, It's the duty of nations, as well as men, to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon. We've grown in number as a nation. We've grown in wealth and in power as no other nation has before. But we have forgotten God. We've forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we've vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. And I just wonder whether we as a church need to start getting on our knees before God and saying, we as a nation have forgotten you, God. We have, as a nation have ignored you, God, and we've disobeyed you, God, and we confess our sins to you, God. But that corporate confession doesn't excuse you from your individual confession. Verse 6, I have sinned. I and my father's house have sinned. I, God, have disobeyed you. I, God, have been lazy and selfish and proud and deceitful, and I've been lustful. It is really hard to repent if you don't name your sins. But repentance isn't just saying sorry. Repentance is doing what verse 9 says and returning to God and carefully observing his commands. Repentance is saying, I want to come back to God and start to live God's way and live differently. Repentance is in your mind, you say, yes, that sin is wrong. In your heart, you feel the weight of the sin. And with your will, you say, I do want to live differently, God. Let me try and show you. God's over here. And you and your sinner over here. And you recognize the wrong that you've done and the hurt that you've caused. And you can stay over here and you can feel sorrow and you can feel remorse. That is not repentance. Because you're still separate from God. Repentance is coming to God and acknowledging all the ways you've offended him and the hurt that you've caused and pleading for forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. But then wanted to stay with God and wanted to walk with God and wanted to do what God says. That's repentance. Saying, I don't want to go back over there, God. I want to walk closely with you, God. And when you've seen how glorious God is, then repentance just comes more naturally. Now, how did the Lord's Prayer start? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive us our sins. How does Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's prayer start? Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God, we confess we've sinned against you. So you praise, you repent. The A is the easy one we do all the time. We ask. We're good at this one. Bring your shopping list, tell God what you want. But that's good, isn't it? 
Of course it's right to ask God. Why do, you, why do you ask God? Every time you ask God, you're showing God that you trust him, that you're dependent on him, that he is your king, he is your father, he's a good God who loves you. So ask and it will be given. Seek and knock. Verse 11, Nehemiah asks, he says, give your servant success. It's not wrong to pray that. Have compassion on me. Not wrong to pray that. He says, God, change the mind of this king. I need your help. When you ask God, can I encourage you not just to ask for yourself. Ask for others. Keep a list of what others want, others need. Pray for other people, not yourself. I'm not going to spend much time on the egg because I don't think we've got, we've got a problem with asking. So you praise, you repent, you ask. What's the why for? No one know? Yield. Just an old word for hand it over to God. Yield it to God. Place yourself and your requests and your desires in God's hand and say, you are God and I am not. I've come before you, God. I've laid my request before you. Into your hands we leave it, God. That's the Lord's prayer, isn't it? Your will be done, not my will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And what struck me about these verses 5 to 11 is the number of times your is used. It's used 33 times. Let me give you one example, verse 10. They are your servants, God, and your people. You redeem them by your great power and your strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to reveal your name. And what he's saying there is, God, no. We are your people, it's in your hands, it's in your timing, it's your will. We just leave it into your hands, God. For many of us, we are good at asking, and then we go into fix-it mode and solution mode rather than saying, okay, God, you've heard me, I trust you. I meet with a guy who goes to 945 Church, his name is Tyler, and we've been meeting for a while now, and They've been waiting for their permanent residence visa for quite some time. And every week we pray for this visa and his job's on the line because of lack of visa. And I met with him about three weeks ago and he said, look, they just told me it could be months, it could be months, I don't know what to do. And then he said to me, I was driving on Saturday and I just had this kind of, this moment with God where I said, okay God, I've been praying now for so long. I just want to leave it in your hands, God. Your will be done. You're in control of this. Your timing, not my timing. I'm just going to leave it in your hands. And he describes how this peace came over me. He said, look, God knows what my desires are. He knows what my will is. I'm just entrusting it to him. Rest on that Tuesday morning, you told me about that on a Saturday. And at 4 p.m. on that Tuesday afternoon, he phoned me to tell me that that very day, the immigration phoned and answered his prayers and granted that visa. And it's almost like God was trying to teach him this lesson. Look, you've got to let go. Take your hands off the wheel. Stop thinking you're going to control this situation and just say, your will be done, God. Your timing, your will. Yield yourself to God. Trust that he knows. Trust that he cares. I hope that's helpful in terms of your prayer life. Praise. Repent, ask, and yield. Praise, repent, ask, and yield.
what uh, Robert McShane said, you are what you are on your knees before God and nothing else. Your prayer life's a window into your soul. So what I thought we'd do now is uh, I'm going to give you some time to pray by yourself. And then we'll say a prayer of confession together. We have sinned. And then we're going to put into practice what we just preached and actually just pray. So where you are, either pray personally, privately, or if you're bold enough, stand where you are and with a loud voice, lead us in prayer, praising prayers, repentance prayers, asking prayers, yielding prayers. Let's just pray and then we'll end tonight with two songs.